Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, a series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Octavia Rahim, beloved author, mother, activist, yoga teacher and practitioner, whose books Gather and Pause, Rest, Be, Stillness Practices for Courage in Times of Change, offer revolutionarily gentle, powerful ideas and practices to restore the body, mind and spirit. Having received national attention for her work training yoga teachers and diversifying the yoga and wellness industry, Octavia's work as a yoga professional focuses on practical tools to teach individuals how to manage stress, anxiety and fatigue through yoga and meditation in a way that is accessible to all levels and abilities and restorative to the nervous system. Her work has been featured in Yoga Journal, Mantra Magazine, Well Plus Good, CNN, WXIA and Atlanta Magazine, and she is one of the most vibrant and inspiring voices I have come across in the reimagining of what it means to reclaim our rest. If you're searching for a way to come home to yourself or to transform ethnic or race-based stress and trauma, Octavia's teachings offer a path towards refuge and her voice is a powerful guide to surviving, healing and thriving in difficult times. Now is no ordinary moment in time. Now is a moment of startling individual and collective endings. Now is the space before something else becomes. Now is both a promise and fulfillment of fresh beginnings. The sacred cycle of being human seems to be speeding up. For many, we assume the remedy is to match that speed. As we become more and more exhausted, anxious, and disillusioned with trying to keep up with an inhumane pace, it is apparent that all of the battling, the swiftness, and the forging ahead brought me, brought us, collectively to this moment, this moment where we are perhaps finally ready to listen for a new rhythm and tune. Octavia, thank you so much for reading that paragraph of your really beautiful book, Pause, Rest, Be. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) So let's start where you start with with your book, which is this kind of frenetic activity Why is it that you think we've gotten to this place where rest is such a revolutionary act? You know, it's really curious to me, um, actually. (laughs) But if we think about what revolutionary is, it means it stands out. It is an action that causes us to take a new course or go in a different direction And I believe that we are individually and collectively at a time where it is so apparent that the way we've been living and engaging and operating is not just simply harmful and tiring and fatiguing, but it's not sustainable. Um, It's not sustainable. Um, You know, if I use some language of doing, right, if you think about the way you train for a sprint, versus a marathon, <laughs> um, sprinting through a marathon for most of us is not sustainable and is going to create our, an injury on some level of our being. Yet most of us have been sprinting through life <laughs> in all these arenas and it's just not mm-hmm. sustainable. But what I, what I want to be clear on is that 
I'm not trying to pathologize the individual. I think it's systemic, it's cultural, it's institutionalized. The nine to five work day, the five week work week, you have paid time off, but you're kind of ashamed if you use it. That's not an individual problem. It's an, a structural problem. And within structural problems, individuals who are brave enough, courageous enough to interrupt the regularly scheduled program can spark change. But I just want to say that because sometimes I'm working with people arresting with folks and they're like, I just can't rest. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, we've been deeply conditioned and programmed to identify our greatest productivity with what we can do and um, with what we can squeeze out of our labor (laughs) Mm -hmm. and not with simply how we can be and show up with and for each other in nourishing and truly generative and sustainable ways, right? Um, I'm situated in the United States, right? I don't know where people might be listening to this from. But within this country, there's a long and fraught history of dehumanization of many folks, Mm. and including Black, Indigenous, people of color, and women's labor. And You know, I started out as a, like, I'm a yoga teacher, right? And I teach about rest and restorative yoga. And I remember when um, I had a friend who was a yoga activist who came to one of my very first, it's probably like 10 or 12 years ago, they came to one of my classes and they left. And after the class, they said, you know, this is, you're really subversive. And I thought, no, (laughs) not, I'm just tired. And I think other people are tired. So I'm teaching a practice that invites people into doing less and experiencing more. And so really at that time, I was like, there's nothing radical about this. It is like, literally, I'm tired and people are tired. So I'm sharing a practice that can support us. And (laughs) as time has gone on, I'm like, Okay, I guess it rest is subversive. Rest because we're interrupting. I'm talking about in the country I live in, f- at least 400 mm-hmm. years of um, exploitation of one's labor and work. Like, what does it mean to say, no, actually, I'm not going to do that that way. I'm gonna mm-hmm. gonna rest um, when we live in a culture that um, overprivileges rest overprivileges um, work and everything is to be objectified, consumed, or Mm. commodified, you know? And so I think all of that, our relationship with consumption, our culture of doing, the (laughs) systems of how we work and labor and just good old-fashioned, this can't go on like this anymore, has brought us to the place of people finally being willing and ready to consider rest as a place of possibility and not just something you do as a last resort mm-hmm. when when you were just like, I can't go on anymore, right? <laughs> so that that's what I think on kind of like this collective level, and then we are individuals within a collective, and so... On the simplest level, I just believe people are tired yeah, and tired of being that way and seeking ways to restore a sense of wholeness. Mm. It's so interesting hearing you speak about that. I think one of the things that comes to my mind is this idea that we just keep pushing ourselves and pushing ourselves until we hit a wall. And it's only then that many of us will give ourselves permission to stop. And it's crazy that it gets that far. Mm. I remember a few years ago, I was talking with people in the tech space. And these are people who on the outside on social media, they're doing really well. They've got a lot of privilege. They've got a lot of skills. They're making good money. They're running their companies. And we had this private chat. It was a group of maybe 15 of us. And some of the guys were saying, you know, sometimes I just wish I would get hit by a car Mm. so I could take time off and be in hospital and no one would need anything from Mm -hmm. me. And it really, I found it very upsetting because I just thought, God, these are people who are quote unquote at the top of their game, and that's the problem. It's that's the wrong game. Like we're yes. we're collectively playing the wrong game, and it's so hard to unhook ourselves. I think it's almost this kind of, you know, re-education that if I'm not 
busy, if we have the choice, and this is a big if, because many people don't have the choice, yeah. if we have the choice to work, then there's almost a sense of obligation to work more, because mm. either you want to make the money or you're feeling like you're not contributing enough. And so I wonder, what are some of the ways in which you found, whether it's embodied practices, meditation practices, also you talk about seeing ourselves as this part of this beautiful, rich lineage of ancestors as well. So changing the way that we think about or story our lives. Mm. What are some of the ways that you think we can begin to unhook ourselves from this idea of I must work to provide value and therefore change the culture enough so that hopefully we also create a system where exploitation is not the norm Yeah. so that people who don't have a choice have a choice? Mm-hmm. You know, um, thank you for that beautiful framing of that question and... That sentiment of getting hit by a car so that the injury gives me permission to rest, I've heard that a lot too, you know, as a rest guide. And and it hurts to hear it again and again and again. Mm. And I just think about the, the way we've internalized violence as a way of being that's deeply violent right, to need violence to stop us from enacting more violence upon ourselves through the way we're working and taxing ourselves. But a thing I'm really, that I find helpful is just to be in curiosity and inquiry. And the first inquiry I would invite folks into is to sit with how do I define value? And who taught me that? And who taught them that? And who taught them that? And is that the whole truth? There might be some truth in that, but is it a complete vision of what value is? Um, And so that's a place to begin because so many of what the way we're defining value or success, many of us haven't stopped to go, wait a minute. Do I actually give one shit about <laughs> yeah. that? Like to be mm. to be really clear, sometimes we're chasing something that we don't want. It's a symbol that was given to us, and we're like, okay, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> so that's that's one thing. This inquiry around, like, no, what actually is of value to me more deeply? What are my actual values? Am I living in accordance with that? Even how do I d- define productivity? Hmm. Hmm. And whose definition is that? Does that definition serve me now? And, you know, and context changes too, right? Like what what I have to be aware of being a Black woman in the U.S. from the rural South is there are very lived um, realities and experiences. There, There are things I learned from my family And um, they learned from my ancestors that kept them safe, allowed them to survive. Mm. And they were in a kind of survival mode that that I may not be in, but yet I learned lessons from ones who were in that kind of survival mode. And I'm saying that to say is we might have been taught something that served the time period that it came out of, but does it serve us now? And will it be create sustainability for the future? And I think some of the things, the way we define work ethic, <laughs> it's like, well, we are not even questioning where that came from and what was the spirit out of which it came and whether or not it's a spirit we want to keep engaging with to speak to it in that, in that kind of language. So that's where I would start. And then some of the the practical tools for me related to to rest, you know, I'm a practitioner. Like I practice restorative yoga, meditation and yoga nidra. And before all of that, I was like (laughs) an avid um, Olympic weightlifter. (laughs) I did not know that. I knew about the the hot. Like, and not, but like, not like I wasn't like, I'm talking about like, through high intensity training, right? Oh my gosh. And, and what I'm saying is like, I, and yes, I did all the hot yoga and all the power yoga and yeah. I really love <laughs> like movement and I still love, I'm like, I love lifting weights. This is a thing. Like I dwell, <laughs> I dwell in the both and a lot because actually that's where my wholeness comes from, right? Mm. And I'm saying that to say that I didn't just shift from, and now 
let's be about rest and stillness. Mm. I actually had to forge a relationship with um, slowing down first. I mean, because I lived and moved at a fast clip and I thought that was the way to get anything done. And in retrospect, I don't remember any of it. And I have whole swaths of time in my life that like, I know I'm here right now, but I'm like, how did I get here? Like if I try to remember somewhat some things that happened during this very fast clip of my life, it's like I wasn't even there for it, which is that living. Again, we got to go, is that how I want to define success? Like I did all these things and I literally can't remember it. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and so what I'm just saying is that forging a relationship with just even um, moving at a different place sometimes. And to be clear, sometimes we need to move fast. Some things are actually urgent, but not all things. And it can't be at all times that we need to move fast and be in a hurry. Um, And so basically, I'm just like, how do we have a relationship with slow, whether that is waking up a little more slowly or eating one meal slowly or actually asking someone you're calling in the morning, how are you? And waiting the extra one minute to hear the real response. Mm-hmm. Like first it's just the first practice is not go straight into stillness because most of us don't have, we can't tolerate that. Um, the way I think about it is if you're driving your car at 108 miles per hour, <laughs> which is over anybody's speed limit, right? Yeah. But Or let's be more realistic, let's say 90 and then you all of a sudden, a hard stop, that's halting, that's jarring, that's mm. deeply disturbing to your um, vehicle and to <laughs> the person in the vehicle. And it's the same thing with when we realize, like, I'm tired, I need to stop. For most of us, we first have to slow down, move some things, reorganize some schedules, mm. and then we get to a place where um, being being still or some of these still practices become more accessible if that feels clear. Um, so slow down first mm. in some area in your life that feels safer to do than Because there are places where like, I can't, I can't change the way I'm operating just yet. Mm. Okay, then find the place where you're like, I can try another way here. That's such a vivid idea as well, the, the image of the car not wanting to hurtling yourself through the, the windscreen of your of your life, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I'm like, I I get that. Mm. I'm like, if you're living at a really wild, frenetic, fast pace, then the first is like, okay, let me go from 90 to 85. Mm. (laughs) See what that feels like. Okay, let me go from 85 to 90. That that is, that's also more sustainable, right? For me, the movement toward stillness or movement toward rest is really about sustainability. What can we be in ritual and relationship with over a long period of time? What will we actually keep showing up for um, and doing versus, it's not, it's not a trend to me, right? Like it happens to be trending, mm. you know? <laughs> but I'm like, I have been teaching restorative yoga and yin like practices, you know, since 2012 or 2013. And I plan to continue, right? I, I will evolve and the, the message will. Um, and I love that people are interested in it right now, but I'm like, I will be interested in it. And I hope my great, great grandchildren yeah. are interested <laughs> in it, right? It's legacy mm. work for me. And I think also it has, it has a ripple on effect because as soon as you see one person, mm-hmm doing it, it gives permission to actually think about it, to really even see it as a possibility. I think this is one of the things that increasingly I'm I'm becoming more focused on is is the sense of, you know, who who out there is imagining different creative possibilities? That's right. And how can we put some more light on that? Like shine the light, talk Mm -hmm. about these things more so that it becomes more of a common like more common knowledge because I think so much of our public conversations are around all of the challenges that we face and Mm. it can be very stress inducing and very anxiety provoking and then the question is well how do you find a way back to the both and that you talked about earlier but how do you find a way to be aware of the challenges we face and also take care to rest and refuel and one of the things that you write about is that transformation requires rest so if we've got these grand ideas about transforming systemic issues which are complex and vast rest has to be part of the puzzle no like yeah 
And I think it was Einstein that said you can't solve a problem at the vibrational level that the problem was created. I don't know if he exactly said that, but, (laughs) and what I think about is um, when I see organizations who have these really beautiful and important missions that in language speak toward culture shift, transformation, equity, justice, whatever it is, and then though how they are operating within that, that organization completely mirrors the systems that created the things that they are working to dismantle or shift or create change around. That is the most curious thing to me. And it's completely typical. And what I'm saying all that to say is that um, for me and what I experienced with the individuals and, and leaders and folk that I rest with is that in a more restful space, they finally have an opportunity to envision Another way, when you're just in the same cadence, the same rhythm, (laughs) your ideas just reflect where you are Mm -hmm. versus possibility. And then if we just think about anything in in nature, there's winter, spring, summer, and fall in most places, right? Mm -hmm. There's the season of um, planting, a season of tending, a season of harvest, and a season of dharmacy. And like this natural world creates it is generative in ways that we can only hope to be and so I'm like well who are who am I to to go against that system that is far older than all of these systems we've constructed and built into the natural cycle even in just the cycle of a day there's day and night and so part of it is learning to trust this this rhythm that is beyond our small yet mighty humanity and to really let it get in your bones that if you are not resting, you are simply replicating <laughs> systems mm. of harm, mm. right? Like, you know, like it's like rest, because here's the thing rest isn't, it's not a luxury, it's l- actually a necessity. Just like food and water is something that that fuels the the physical being. And when this physical being loses capacity, what is left? Hmm. What else can, can we actually do or, or create? Um, and so I know that can be a mental leap for many hmm. people. And it's also just true. Everything, um, everything that grows has a season of dormancy or resting or cocooning or something mm-hmm. <laughs> before it has the, the real expansive leap of growth. It's interesting the transforming and the cocooning, two things. One is that, um, as you're mentioning this dormancy, I just finished reading this beautiful book called Wintering. Yeah, I know that book. Oh, yep. it's so lovely. Yes, I love that book too. I'm looking to the left because I'm <laughs> like, is it on my, yeah, by Catherine May. Yeah. That's it. That's the one. Yep. Mm-hmm. And um, and she makes the same. It's not even an argument, statement of fact, really. That yeah, because you know. she's very scientific in it. Is what mm-hmm. I loved about that book. Because I'm <laughs> like, we are we are really for, part of the fatigue is we're literally working against nature, mm-hmm. and that is uh, that is extremely fatiguing. Is an understatement. And I think also it creates. I mean, we know, for instance, that it creates illness in extreme cases and it's just it's just not something which mm. is going to create for a healthy society the second thing that you mentioned the cocooning I'd love to pick up on that because mm-hmm. in your book one of the metaphors around change that we use obviously is the caterpillar to the butterfly but you wrote about something that I had no idea about which is that in its stage of dissolution where it turns to mush mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there are cells that exist within that soup imaginal cells mm-hmm. that can become anything from an antenna to an eye and you link this phenomenal fact with the idea that we as humans might conceive of ourselves as imaginal cells within the great organism of humanity or perhaps within the imaginary of the earth if we think of her as a living system. Yes. How can we live yeah. into this potential? Yeah, that's beautifully stated. How can we live into this beautiful potential? Allow the cocooning. Because here's the thing, like we, um, 
And really, it's a call to be in process versus product and outcome. So I talk about that imaginal selling and cocooning in the liminal section of the book. And the liminal kind of literally means the threshold. And most of the times when we encounter a threshold, it's like a door is opening or closing. And what we want to do is be on the other side of mm-hmm. it and rush and rush through it. And um, the threshold is also a place of possibility. And I'm deeply curious about what happens when we linger impossibility versus speed through it. And part of why we don't is because we want an answer. In impossibility, there isn't an answer. It, it, mm-hmm. Like I said, with the marginal cells, or as is true with the marginal cells, it could become this, it could become that, it could become that. And I think that's such a beautiful and generative place to be, but we're out of practice with, with being in that place where it's not so defined. Um, so part of it, I think, would be Um, Living into who we actually can be is developing a relationship with process versus let me get to the end and move on to the next thing. Mm, I'm I'm nodding quietly because I spend a lot of time in exactly that mindset, which is, oh, let's do the next thing and let's get some certainty. And it's just, Mm. it's a very kind of, I can feel it in my body if I check in, (laughs) which I endeavor to do more. It's like this forward leaning, constrictive sensation and it's um it's not a comfortable sensation and yet there's it's kind of a rush away from the discomfort i guess in some ways from lack of practice of being with not knowing um and being okay not knowing yeah like you know if you think about like i was um meeting with an organization this morning who in i was supporting them envisioning this retreat where the entire retreat the point is just to vision more, to explore mm. more, to be more curious. <laughs> and there was no like, and this is like kind of a, a detour in some way from the way they normally structure organizational gatherings to be like, we're getting to this exact point. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to be like, okay, so the entire point of this is to open to possibility. Okay. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's, we're inviting people into like an uncomfortable state and someone's probably going to put on a feedback form that you wasted their time. (laughs) Just a heads up. (laughs) Right, right. right. And again, it's no, well, I'm, I'm inviting you into process and to linger at the threshold for just a moment before we go, I already have the answer, let's run in that direction. But to actually look around and observe the landscape, experience the Mm -hmm. landscape and allow yourself to be intrigued by, but what if I go left instead of right? Or Mm -hmm. or something else, some other kind of small awareness that comes from the pausing that might be the awareness we need for the kind of expansion we're calling into, a calling in. And so, but I also want to name when you say you lean into the forward movement, what's next? Like, mm. yeah, we, we all do that. <laughs> like, uh. like, like I do it too. And I do it too. And, and I do that and in the both and, right? Sometimes I just like pull myself back and go, <laughs> let's, let's be right here. Let's reflect. Let's release some of what happened if it feels heavy and like mm. I don't want to just be carrying that into the next thing and and sometimes that pausing is a literal minute mm. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it's a day sometimes it's a week sometimes it's a month a season I don't know where I read this but I was reading about someone and I have to find it so I can put names to it who he worked and created and produced five to seven years and then he would take a full year off oh yes I read about this this person and he was like and and everything that grew for the the next five or seven years or season of his creation was really came out of this pretty agendaless one year that he Mm. would have 
And to be clear, everyone like who has that. Yeah. But I, I would posit, though, we all have the space in between the inhale and exhalation. We all have the space between the word, I, this word, and the next word. We do all actually have access to some pause, even if it is one minute. And I think um, the just, I hope me saying that to someone awakens them to get curious about how they can access the pause, even if it has to be in this way that's like they just got to steal it or snatch their time back from something or somewhere to be empowered um, to take their kind of momentary or inner sabbatical. Mm. You know, a thing I often say is like whoever (laughs) controls your, your work controls your rest and whoever's controlling your access to rest and whether it's in your mind or it's literally someone's controlling it, they mm. control you. Cause I'm like my most generative, <laughs> like the two books I have written, people go, how'd you, what's your writing process? And I want to give something really big, bright and flashy. And I'm like, my writing process is I rest and I write, <laughs> you know? And and some of the nuance within that is having boundary around that time of mm. resting and writing so that it actually mm. has space to occur. But there's no, I didn't do a program. I didn't consult anyone, <laughs> you know? I can, you know, like I'm like, I rested and I wrote, you know? And that rest is just incredibly generative to me. And it's amazing to me that some things that I wanted to create in my life, like my decades of just like mm. grinding and hustling, like in the back of my mind and being there is always, I want to write books, blah, blah, blah. I never got around to it until I rested. That doesn't add up in this one sense. Yeah. That some of the, some of the greatest work I've wanted to do in my life didn't become possible until I started creating the space to rest and receive inner guidance about the real how to do it. Um, it's it's tricky. I find I was having a real battle with myself today and sometimes this happens, not, not thankfully too often, but sometimes. So I paint as well as the other things that I do and I'm trying to create boundaries so that I can actually get myself there. So I carve out the time, that's fine. And then I find myself cannibalizing my own time with these little tasks mm-hmm. that I don't need to be engaging and they're not urgent. No one's going to, you know, be mad if I don't finish them. And it's this really strong internalized, mm, like someone cracking a whip almost or like pushing yeah. hard. It's a very visceral sense of, this is going to sound really strange maybe, but like it feels like a sense of cowering to this voice. And it's quite, it's a really uncomfortable place to be, but it was really strong this morning. I thought, wow, this is, I wouldn't allow anyone to speak to my friends or loved ones in the way that this voice that I've internalized is speaking to me. Mm. Why do I let myself get away with it? And this is this really strange battle between, and eventually I did get myself out the house and I went and painted and it was wonderful. But that grapple, especially because it's inside, it's so hard to pull away from and say, well, you know, it's my boss or it's this, but, you know, it's hard to, to put the blame anywhere. For me, at least, it's like, well, I'm doing it to myself. So I wonder, is there a way, perhaps through pause or perhaps through, I guess, inquiry or something, to talk to that internalised voice, wherever it comes from, and be like, okay, enough with the shoving and the pushing. Mm. I'm choosing to take some space because that's something that I, I think I'm not alone in <laughs> probably complaining about. No, but it's also this, um, there's, it's so vivid, this, I I don't know where you're, where you originate from, right? But this, the, the whip crack is like, painful. Mm, <laughs> I, I see it. Mm. Um, I, I feel like I have an embodied, like, I think we started this conversation. I was talking about like the, the systems and the deep layers of conditioning. Mm. And then you use this language that really represents the core of the system that I'm talking about that is still very much influencing how all of us relate to 
to work, whether our ancestors were enslaved or caught mm-hmm. in the, that had the whip cracked against their back or not. Mm-hmm. And so I think kind of turning to that part that is like, it's so fearful mm-hmm. and so hurt and so um, shamed of not producing in a way because you know painting is not necessarily like (laughs) no one's like go paint and I'm gonna reward you for that like you know like acts of creativity are sometimes like what are you doing you're wasting your time (laughs) you know and so on some level it's just like turning to with deep awareness and courage that part of self that is that way Mm. And been like, you know, I think this is an Oprah question. What happened to you? Who hurt you? Mm. Um, why are Why are we this way? And listening to to, to those those uh, answers, the remedy might be within that. And and for me, rest is um, me snatching the whip from whomever's hands and being like fuck that Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and and so for me like that that like it literally is an internal life for me rest is this defiant act because I do have this kind of embodied remembrance of not owning my time and my having agency in what I create and my labor and what is produced from it. Right. But, but in order to come to that, I like had to turn and be like, Ooh, that is painful. Watching this play out within me and listening to this voice that is like, you're Mm. just lazy, Mm. work harder, go faster. Like I had to turn to that voice (laughs) and, you know, have some compassion be like, what's happening here? (laughs) (laughs) Who are you talking to? Why are we this way? Okay, deep compassion. And then also saying, you don't get to control this show anymore. I understand all of that. Like, it's an internal conversation. Uh, I also think I, you should give yourself credit for really noticing it because you're <laughs> noticing it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, you're noticing that, like, wow, I'm having this. I'm basically degrading myself for being myself. For being this part of myself and holding that with, like, I call it fear is compassion where I'm like, I'm going to, let's, let's see, let's get curious about this. And then, okay, I'm not going to listen to that anymore. And then not listening becomes an action. And, and what I mean is like, for me, every time I rest, that voice gets smaller and the voice that arises within the space of spaciousness or rest is my more authentic voice, is my deeper truth. And the more I go, don't do what that other voice is shouting at me to do, that shouting voice becomes the whisper until it fades into its little tiny scared box. (laughs) (laughs) And and then the the more you just go paint. I love that. That really touched me. (laughs) The more you go paint, the more... um, you build the neurological pathway and the kind of muscle, if you will, to that, that's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to use my energy. Mm. It's funny because there's, there's also, I think, and this really comes up time and again for people who are exploring different ways of living, there's such a great fear attached to it of if, if we give ourselves permission to live in a different way, to mm. paint, if we have the ability to, to take time off and do that, it's the kind of, oh, my God, something terrible is going to happen. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, in your book, you write about the fact that institutional oppression is encoded in our most intimate relationships, including the one we have with the self. Mm. It struck me so much because mm. whether you're looking that through the lens of our descendants and race, gender, mm-hmm. sexuality, ability, age, there are so many ways yeah. in which we shame people, ourselves, and others. Um, And then you you kind of invite the reader, and I imagine you'll practice as well, to break with this code and make a different choice. So I imagine all all people experience wounding, but for for those of us who have really got strong codes that we want to break out of, what are some of the ways in which we can begin to recognize that? Because in the book, there's some beautiful 
practices to help support us physically, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically. But you mentioned the noticing parts and you talk about in, this, in the book the story where you notice and then make a different choice. So like, what can help people to, to notice that first moment? Mm. You know, for me in that, the story you're referencing, I um, was very uncomfortable in this abusive relationship for a long time. Um, and I've always been a journaler on some level <laughs> and I, I did, my journal was the place that I told myself the truth hmm. and I can't discount that having a place to tell the truth, even though I hadn't mustered the courage to live it, which would have been to walk away from this situation was really important, right? You you know, because ultimately it was through having a place where I'm communicating truth in some way to myself mm. was what allowed me to, in this moment where I was like, this has, you know, in this moment where it all comes to a head and I'm like, you will not talk to me this way. I will not let you talk to me this way. I will in this right now mm. in a really dramatic way. <laughs> um, but it was really stating my truth and then realizing, oh, I am not living in accordance with this truth and mm. the discomfort of that becoming so strong mm. within. It was stronger than the, the pain I was in. Um, and so we all have to have a, a place where our truth lives, even if we are not living it, <laughs> mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Um, and community is really important. And that the story you're talking about in the literal chapter is called, I think, Breaking Code. Um, and I was in college at the time and my com- community existed um, of peers who young women peers who were grappling with what is womanism, what is feminism. Mm. Um, And even if I wasn't telling them the truth because I was ashamed or whatever, being in relationship with them is also what was sparking within me. Like, this really isn't okay. Mm. Also, my community was, you know, my professors of badass women. (laughs) And my community was also like the books and the philosophers and like the the Alice Walkers and Audre Lars, all these people I was reading who um, they were speaking their truth. And it's what encouraged me to, even though I wasn't living my truth, to keep writing it in my journal so that I wouldn't forget what it actually was. Because sometimes we can be living out of integrity to the point that we we forget and we think like this performance that we're doing every day mm. is who and what we actually are. <laughs> mm. um, so your question is we have to re- retain a way to remember our truth. And we have to have a community... <laughs> of a layered community, and that can include text. That's why I write books, because I recognize that me and you are now in community through this book. We're in community through this conversation, but everyone who reads this book in some way, we're now joined. But we have to have folks that will remind us of who who we really are when we Mm. forget or when our actions don't honor that memory. Um. Because we're not the code, right? Meaning like we're not the, the, the limitations. We're not the isms, like the racism, the sexism. We're not the bias. We're not the prejudice, right? And, and a lot of times we will keep people around us that just reinforce some of those things. But I'm like, it's important to have some people in your circle who are going to be like, no, that's, that's not it. That's not who you are. That's not who you're here to be. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. It's beautiful. So I'm going to listen back to this conversation and etch it on my wall in my studio. Um, But Um, having a place for truth, even if you're not living in that place, is so, it's such a powerful idea because I think also it kind of, it acknowledges the fact that sometimes change, often change of that kind of nature, deep change, takes time and we can fall and fall and fall again on the same stumbling block. It goes back to being in relationship with the process. Mm. 
So I have a few questions just to close. Um, for you, given what you know and how you create and relate with people in the work that you do, what does a flourishing future that we inhabit, that we can create, look like? Oh, I love, I love that question. Um, and a, a question that's literally on my desk that <laughs> I don't have an answer to, which is similar to what you just asked is, what does my what does the most healed and well-rested future mm. look like? What does the most healed and well-rested future look like? And it's a question I got from one of my teachers and mentors, Dr. Gail Parker. And I like what I've come to is that the future is well-rested. <laughs> <laughs> and that when, when the women and when the mothers, and that's not just the biological mothers, those who mother mm-hmm. are well-rested, everything else will be. And this, our way of living will be more sustainable and generative and whole and healed because of it. And I named the women and the mothers because we're some of the most devalued, underappreciated, um, disregarded, exploited, all of all of that, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so that's part of it. The mothers will rest. And this mm-hmm. is how we'll know. <laughs> I love it. Get it printed on a t-shirt. Those who mo- those who mother, you know, those who mother will rest. Because mm-hmm. I think you can be in many bodies and in many any many states of being and be mothering. And that's mm-hmm. that's something I've come to as I vision, like, what does a, what does this look like in the future? And then as someone who deals with ways in which to unhook ourselves from, I would imagine, trauma, anxiety, probably, and we've not touched on it yet, but I would imagine also transgenerational traumas that are passed down. I mean, body work is deep work. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're working with these very deep ways of transformation, and of holding, what are some of the things that give you hope when you felt hopeless? The next breath. (laughs) (laughs) That's just what popped in. Um, The next breath. And something that brings me great joy is watching adults lay down. (laughs) Period. You know, so built into my work is hope. And I know, I know. And so when I I used to own a yoga studio and I taught this class on Friday nights called The Chill Shop, Hmm. which at first it was like just two people, then it was five people, then it was 10 people. We could hold about 24. Then it was like constantly waiting lists, right? And literally what we did in the class is restorative yoga. And at first I would do like a full restorative class with like all these themes and moving from post to post. And then we just started getting bolsters, sitting up doing a meditation and then just laying down Mm. for like 75 (laughs) minutes to an hour. Right. And and I, and and I used to have all these things prepared to say and to try to make incredible (laughs) points and wow people with whatever story I was telling or whatever. And it, the class, as time went on, we got quieter and quieter and quieter. And, I would just sit there, look at these incredibly gifted, talented, world-changing, mostly women in the room, mostly Black, Indigenous, and women of color in the room resting. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'd cry. Sometimes I'd just smile. And it, that brought me hope because, you know, like that takes incredible trust in each other to come into a room to do mm. this. And just what it meant to, for me to have a space to do that with other women like me brings me hope. I'm like, something is shifting. When one of my favorite writers is Zora Neale Hurston and she, uh, one thing she once said was Black women are the mule of the world. And, you know, the way people use mules is uh, you will, the mule, you work, you work and work. When you when your bones collapse, you're done and you might not even be worthy of a proper burial. Mm. And so for me to be with 
people in adults, especially in space, to lay down before we're completely exhausted, to lay down before our bones have cracked, that re- resting with others is is hopeful to me always. You know, um, the 2020 election in the U.S. on that day, I all day long, I just had these moments online where people could come and rest and breathe and release. <laughs> and despite the tension and the fear and the pain of that day for many of us living in the U.S., it actually was a hopeful day to me because people would rise up from their rest and say, you know, I, I can face whatever's coming. Hmm. That's powerful. Yeah, I think this is powerful. I rest, is, rest is powerful. I, you know, I'm like, plug into your power, rest, <laughs> right? Like, 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 I'm like, I'm not trying to simplify here, folks. And it ain't much complex than that. It's not that much, you know. Now we could get into like, does it need to be 90 minutes, 30 minutes? Do you got three minutes? Start with that. Right? Start there. And I'm going to do that also. <laughs> so that's what you can do. Listening to this, you can start rest. Start rest. Um, yeah. So before we close, because you've, you've referenced some wonderful people, I wondered if there's a quote or a saying that you have found to be deeply moving or invaluable or inspiring that... Um, that you feel you want to share. It's a little bit putting you on the spot here, sorry. <laughs> so if there isn't, that's okay too. Um, um, Psalms 46.10 from the, the Christian Bible, which is be still and know. And you know, the rest is be still and know that I am God. And so I, I walk with those words they inspire me when there's something that I cannot figure out of my own intelligence, <laughs> something that I feel like I cannot move of my own will, mm-hmm. um, or even communal and collective intention and action. I remember be still and know. That's beautiful. Thank you. Well, Octavia, it's been just a real personal treat chatting with you today. Thank you for going in all of these rich and exciting and interesting reflective areas. If people want to find out more about your work, obviously, pause, rest and be stillness practices for courage in times of change and your beautiful book, Gather. Where else would you like to direct people towards to find out more? They can go to pauserestbe.com. You can find me on Instagram as Octavia Rahim. And my website is octaviarahim.com. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and review as it helps to reach new ears. And for more information, you can visit natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalinahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>